Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Welcome back to Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell, your humble host. Back in the building. God, I love doing what I do. And I love you guys for tuning in. Wherever I'm at. Um, as you know, I got my YouTube back, but uh, I got a two-week suspension. And I deleted all my content. All of it. Well, almost all of it. I kept like eight or nine episodes up that I thought were safe talking crypto and stuff like that. Um, but unfortunately, uh, because I'm sitting on two strikes and they can go back through your catalog and strike you for things that have been said years ago, I didn't really have a choice here. Um, I would have been sitting on 90 day ticking time bomb that if anybody goes and reports me for anything, or if I'm correct and I am being targeted, then they could go back through and find something that's off color and just hit me with the third strike, in which case the channel's gone. So if you want to watch the video version, as some of you are doing right now, it will be on Rumble. I'm going to be uploading to Rockfin, Sovereign, Odyssey, probably my locals too. So I'm going to try and put it as many places as possible just so I can stay alive here. And once the strikes fall off of my YouTube and I can safely publish things without risking a third strike, which nukes me entirely, then I will start doing so again. Um, some episodes that are I know are too hot, I will just post on Rumble and forget about YouTube for those. But I'm trying to get the most reach possible. I know it makes it challenging for my audience who's trying to figure out where I'm at. The safest spot, <clears throat> audio, wherever you're listening, Spotify, iTunes, whatever, or Apple Podcasts, I should say. Uh, and then Rumble, Odyssey, you know, those will be the homes for now. And I am also uh, hopeful that Rumble will give me an exclusive deal to publish there so then they actually care about me uh, not, not being nuked so working on that we'll see uh, but the evolution is all part of the game and the censorship apparatus is ever evolving and I have to evolve with it so I'm doing my best to do so uh, a lot of people were like dude don't delete stuff from YouTube just let them nuke you it's like why? <laughs> Why should I do that? I was just nuked two weeks ago. I just got the appeal to get uh, my third strike taken off. Like, why would I not want to keep my, you know, 15,000 subscriber account up over there? Like, of course I want to keep it up. So that doesn't mean I'm going to change what I'm saying. It just means that I'm going to change the things that I upload there. You understand the difference? So like, I'm still giving you that OG Liberty Lockdown insane flame nonsense, but I'm just trying to keep as many outlets as possible, as many options as possible. So if you understand what I'm doing, thank you. And if you don't, that's okay too. You can call me a fraud and a sellout or whatever. <laughs> I don't really care. Um, so today I have on, once again, it's Judge Nap Friday. We got Judge Andrew Napolitano. It's another great interview. Um, we actually talk about uh, peaceful secession, update on Ukraine, and uh, a few other things, lab leak. You know what he thinks actually transpired. It's it's a it's a good one, good but a quick one. Uh, but since we talked about peaceful secession, and because that has been such a popular topic, I wanted to play a video before I start that interview from Vivek Ramaswamy. Just dropped like thirty minutes ago, and it's his uh, plea to not go for peaceful national divorce or secession. And while I respect Vivek on a lot of things, uh, I also disagree with him on a lot. He had, just yesterday, he said that he's interested in essentially declaring war on the cartels in Mexico if they don't stop the flow of fentanyl. Uh, if you are at all familiar with the war on drugs, or if you are at all familiar with the DEA, or if you're at all familiar 
with our government and its CIA history of trafficking in drugs, uh, that isn't going to work, okay? You're not going to bomb fentanyl into non-existence. If people want it, they're going to get it. Uh, my personal remedy would be to legalize heroin and then to uh, hopefully find ways to get more people treatment to get off of the drug as opposed to taking fentanyl, fentanyl which as far as I understand it, many drug addicts actually do not want to be using fentanyl. Uh, the reason that it's become so popular is because it's a very condensed, very high potency uh, version of an opioid, essentially, and they're able to transit it for you know way less cost because it's so dense and you can sell so many you can transfer so many doses on, on a mule or or in a truck and you know why wouldn't they why wouldn't they go that route but unfortunately for the users it's extraordinarily dangerous and you can overdose very very easily particularly if you don't know what you're taking and the reason that most people don't know what they're taking is because it's illegal and there is no sort of oversight or anything that allows them to test purity or to even know necessarily what they're injecting. And that is a problem that prohibition simply does not solve. And prohibition and the war on drugs has been a abject failure for 40 years, and it will continue to be so. And Vivek going that path is extraordinarily disappointing to me because I think of him as a forward thinker. And this is classic red meat to the conservative base. They're very upset about fentanyl and the overdoses and the 100,000 plus deaths that are ha happening annually from different overdoses. And I completely share their outrage. But prohibition and declaring war on the cartels ain't gonna, ain't gonna bring those lives back. And it's probably not even gonna reduce the loss of life. So that's my take. Vivek, now comes out in opposition to peaceful national divorce. I haven't even watched it yet. It's just a two minute video, but I wanna give you my instant reaction and uh, hopefully allow myself to elaborate further on why I think it is a path that we should be considering. So this concept of a national divorce has come up increasingly. And I'll tell you the thing that made me sad is if there's one thing that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said that most of her opponents agree with most, it was her call for that national divorce. Now, she's since clarified what she meant, but put that, put her comments to one side. Let's just talk about this idea. The more we- Hold on real quick. Uh, if your opponents agree with you on something and it allows us to peacefully separate, I don't see that as a negative for Marjorie Taylor Greene bringing that up. Let's see what else he has to say though, before I go crazy. We talk about a divorce, whether it's in a marital relationships or whether it's in a relationship among citizens, the more likely it is to happen. But why is that? Why are we talking about it now? We've always been a divided, diverse democracy. What's causing it to come up now? It has to do with the issue that I have been focused on for the last three years of my life. That is the politicization of our economy and corporate America itself. That's a big part of it. Because you know what, Alexis de Tocqueville, he traveled this country, what, some 160 odd years ago. He made an observation, which is that a diverse, divided democracy is not supposed to stand for more than a couple of generations. It can only exist, he said, if there are certain intermediary institutions that hold us together across our differences that are kept apolitical. And you know what number one on that list is? Is actually our system of free market capitalism in America. 
that is the apolitical sphere that's our glue that it's it's so far from being apolitical at this point it's it's incredible that he's bringing this up uh, obviously he believes he can remedy it and then we'll come back together because we'll no longer be divided by our uh, consumer decisions but uh, man that's a reach binds us together the baseball stadiums of this country the football stadiums of this country the workplaces of this country where people come together regardless of whether they're black or white or even Democrat or Republican, with some sense of common purpose, that is the last best chance for a divided society to stand. And so everything that we talk about relating to the ESG movement or stakeholder capitalism or woke capitalism, these aren't just theoretical concepts. That's actually what gets us to the doorstep of a national divorce. And I say the more we depoliticize the private sector, the more likely we are to find a common cause as Americans. Well, uh, I mean, I guess he and I agree. Like, if you were to find a way to defeat ESG and to uh, depoliticize the economic model we're utilizing, it would it would certainly help to de-escalate things. So, no disagreement there. Um, but I will say, the odds of you getting, say, the NFL or the NBA to stop putting Black Lives Matter or, you know, we stand with. <laughs> Ukraine or whatever on their sidelines and in their stands uh, is pretty low at this point. They, it's not simply, and the, the reason it's low is that it's not simply a matter of ESG. This is a far more complicated issue as I've detailed on other shows, but I've never really detailed it here. So let me do so. Um, you have, I've, I've described this in, in years past, but it's, there's a top-down approach that's coming from ESG. And that's where the, the highest levels of capital are actually dictating what private businesses, quote unquote, publicly traded companies should be doing when it comes to their hiring and firing practices, their HR practices, as well as their marketing. And the marketing is really what bothers people most because that's where it's most obvious, but it's happening. If you work for a Fortune 500 company, you know it's happening on a much deeper level when you have DEI. DEI is really the, the bottom up approach and you have the the critical race theory, which begins in the in the schooling system, public schooling system. And then you have DEI, which is kind of the next natural evolution of critical race theory, but it's taken up into the corporate America world. And because you have DEI there, diversity, equity, and inclusion, you have what I believe to be this new evolution of Marxism, where it's no longer about class, but rather dividing people based off of a hierarchy predicated on your national origin, your sexuality, your gender, things of that nature. So it's uh, it's identitarianism writ large, and it's deeply rooted, not just in our culture, but also in our business world and our economy. And this is not something, in my opinion, that you're going to quickly or easily or maybe ever completely rid our country of from a federal presidential diktat sort of methodology. I think that this is going to be a long slog and you would have to essentially abolish public schooling. You would have to do away with CRT and DEI. Um, and then after maybe a generation, you might be able to get to a point where our ec economy is no longer being ran in such an insane fashion. So will I root for Vivek? I do. I don't believe that he's being realistic. I don't. And I think that because he's a businessman, I'll speak to him on a business level. When you're making an opening negotiation, what should you do? Should you ask for a compromise off jump when your opposition is asking for exactly what they want? 
or should you go the other route and ask for exactly what you want while your opposition is forced to compromise? Well, the latter is obviously ideal in business nego negotiation. Same concept as when you walk onto a, a car lot. Do you say what you're willing to offer or do you get the salesman to tell you what they're willing to offer and negotiate from there? Because you're not going to go in there and say, hey, uh, your opening offer is sticker price. Here's what I'm in. This is the price that I would like to walk away at. No, 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 no. The negotiation, negotiating 101 you get them to come off the sticker price as in come down from that sticker price. And then you negotiate because you've already made ground when you're, when you're negotiating, you're trying to get both parties to some level of agreement. The closer they start off to your price target, the more likely you are to get them there. So uh, as someone who has negotiated fiercely for every car I've ever bought, except for the Corvette, which I couldn't negotiate because they were on a two-year waiting list and you didn't have a choice. Um, but every other car I've negotiated for, I always go in there and I get them to make me an offer first. And it, it needs to be a healthy one. I always am willing to walk. And if you're not willing to walk, well, then salesman has you over a barrel, don't they? Same situation here, believe it or not. If you're not willing to walk away from this nation, from the, the, the binds that hold us, well, then you're already negotiating with your slave master. You're essentially saying, I want, I want these things. Are you willing to give them to me? As opposed to saying, I demand these things. And if they're not offered, then I will walk. Same thing on a car lot. Okay. So my hope is that by framing this as our opening offer is peaceful national divorce. And let me clarify one thing too. I'm not saying red and blue states. I want just a total breakup. 100 different nations, if not more, break up based off of region. Cities can have their own shit. I don't want to have anything to do with the politics of, of most major cities in America. I also don't want to have anything to do with the hardcore Christian fundamentalist right wing. I, I don't really want that either. You know, I'm a libertarian. I have differences of opinion on most of these uh, issues. So what I would like to see is 100 different options or maybe more where people that actually share my value system and value set can go and start to rebuild what Vivek is talking about, which is a depoliticized economy, one that is focused on capitalism and innovation and increasing the quality of the product, whereas not so much identitarianism and uh, litigating all of our past injustices based off of you know racial division or sex uh, oppression and division, like none of that. I'm not interested in any of that. I'm not guilty of any of it. And I don't feel like I need to explain or apologize or own any of that, you know, past tragedy. Wasn't me. I'm not doing it. Sorry. Not sorry. Um, so if we can break up into that level, well then, or at least that's our negotiating point. That is a far more fruitful debate to be had. It means that I'm actually asking for what I want to see in the world, as opposed to hey, I'd like to have the federal tax bracket lowered from 37 to 24, <laughs> you know, like in which case they give me 37 anyways. No, I'm going to ask for what I want and I'm going to shift the Overton window on this debate to something that I might find palatable. It has not been palatable in our, I'm going to say our because I assume everyone listening to this right now feels similarly. It has not been palatable my entire life. Every negotiation has been Poison A versus poison B. It never gets me closer to where I want to be. 
So I'm done with that. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not playing that game anymore. I'm going to ask for what I want to see. And if we can negotiate from there and we can settle on something that might look acceptable to my opposition, great. Let's let's try that. Because we've tried the middle of the road, lukewarm, compromise, garbage, and it has gotten us extremist progressivism. Extremist. So are we going to continue to do the same thing and expect different results? Or are we going to change our tact and our language and our demands and our negotiating? I would say you would be insane not to do what I'm describing. Now, if your goal is not to break this nation up, if you believe <coughs> that it's untenable or, or that it will result in violence, I tend to agree with you. It probably would resent, result in violence, unfortunately, because I don't think the feds will let us go. But if you're if you're not in my camp, but you do believe that federal overreach is bad, okay, well, then your negotiating position ought to be, I want to see the FBI abolished. I'm not interested in peaceful secession. However, the, the FBI has gotten completely out of their minds, and I want to see them gone. And if you want me to, to stay in your nation, then I expect you to listen to my demands. So you can actually use what I'm describing. Well, you may not actually agree with me, but you can use it to say, I'm in Clint's camp. But I will settle for the abolition of this insane totalitarian police state FBI. See what it gets you. See if that doesn't take us closer to what we want to see in the world. Because as, as of you know, the full extent of my life, it has simply been the progressives want to have uh, sex changes for kids. <laughs> and then the conservatives are like, no. For adults only. <laughs> it's like, well, that's your negotiating? Like, come on, you got to be a little bit more hard line on this stuff if you expect them to actually take you seriously. And the conservatives are starting to get serious when it comes to curriculum, thankfully. Um, but it, it so rarely do they actually strike the root of these issues. And I am encouraging everyone to strike the root. And the root, as far as I'm concerned, is that we have a federal oligarchy that views us as their property. So much so that they're willing to propagandize us extraordinarily for three years when it comes to a pandemic that they almost certainly created themselves. Still not ready to peacefully separate? Okay. More power to you. I'm ready. <laughs> Just being honest. I am ready. I don't, I don't believe that these people have my best interests at heart. In fact, I think that they're extraordinarily dangerous. Now, let me add to my case. They're also escalating towards World War III, full-blown, full on two fronts, two nuclear powers. They're concocting a narrative in Ukraine. Anybody who's listened to my show already knows the, the extent of that and the details that can back up my claim there. But it's quite clear that they are willing to risk nuclear war to assert their power of influence 6,000 miles away. That is by no stretch of the imagination what our founders believed in. As such, I find it to be un-American and reprehensible and, to boot, extraordinarily dangerous. And I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be a catalyst or I don't want to be kindling in their world, in their world wars. No, thank you. So am I the extremist for saying if you are dead set on World War III, I will break away from you and I will be free in my lifetime and I will not be cannon fodder? 
I don't think I'm an extremist. I think they are. But because they control the narrative, because they control the news, they're, they're allowed, they are enabled to frame us as the radicals. I am not a radical. I just don't want to kill people in mass in nuclear hellfire. Does that make me a radical? Well, maybe in today's parlance it does. I don't believe it does. I believe it makes me sane and actually moral and good. So if you want to put me on a terrorist watch list over it, that's up to you. But I'm just trying to espouse peace here and prosperity. That's it. All right. Let's get into uh, a little bit about the teachers unions who have been part and parcel of propagating your children into gender dysphoria, sadly. This is a really interesting one, and I was blown away by it. Afternoon. My name is Nicole Solis, and I am a mother from Rhode Island who was sued by the teachers union simply because I wanted to know what my kindergartner would be learning in school. And here's how this happened. I asked to see the curriculum and my school told me I had to submit a public records request. The curriculum wasn't posted online and it wasn't available in a school district. Then I asked them if they were teaching gender theory and they told me that they don't call children boys and girls and they embed the values of gender identity into every classroom, including kindergarten, and they didn't want to answer any of my questions further. They told me that they would communicate with me only through public records requests and that is the only way I could get my questions answered. And when I did submit the public records request that they told me to submit, and I submitted hundreds because I had hundreds of questions, my school board then put my name on the agenda of a public school board meeting and held a public school board meeting to discuss suing me for submitting the request that they told me to submit. In a five hour long school board meeting, they openly debated my moral character, my political motivations. They said that I was causing chaos, wreaking havoc, harming the district, harming children. One school board member even said she felt unsafe and started to cry because as you see, I'm really scary standing here <laughs> right now. And they really just tarred and feathered me for asking questions. And they had never met me before and this was the first school board meeting that I had ever been to in my life. They wanted to send a message to other parents that if you ask questions, they will come after you. Well, at the end of this meeting, they decided that they, they wouldn't sue me for asking questions because they never intended on actually suing me. They just wanted to publicly humiliate me in a school board meeting that was a show trial. And when that happened, then the teachers union, the largest teachers union in the country, the NEA, did file a lawsuit against me to bully me and harass me with frivolous litigation and to send a message to other parents that if you ask questions about public education, they will come after you. Scary stuff. Um, kudos to that mom and kudos to every other mom out there that's willing to take a stand on behalf of their children. Uh, obviously, I would like to see beautiful human beings like that decide to homeschool, but you know, circumstances may make that impossible for her. So... Uh, when you can take the fight back to the school board, you should be doing it. And the fact that they would turn around and try and sue her to send a message to all other moms out there that are equally concerned about the curriculum that their parent, or that their children are being force fed. Well, it's reprehensible. It's disgusting. And it ought to be illegal. It ought to be illegal for them to file a lawsuit against a mother who simply wants to know the curriculum that their child is being indoctrinated with. This is America right? Is it still? 
me check my watch. Yeah, I think this is still America. What the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> like, this is so crazy. Um, but I just wanted you guys to be aware that that's happening. You know, that, that not only are they pushing extremist gender ideology upon your children, by and large, not all schools, obviously, but a lot. Um, but they are, they don't want you to know. Why don't they want you to know that? Ask yourself, why wouldn't they want parents to know what their children are being taught? It's because it goes against your belief systems. And because they believe that your belief systems are outdated and archaic and dangerous to your own child. They view your child as their own property. That's the reality of what we're, what we're actually up against is that you have, and, and don't take my word for it. Go look at some of the quotes from the, the heads of these teacher conference or these, uh, you know, teacher unions over the past three years talking about, you know, how essentially they view your children as their own when they're in school. Like they have, they have the highest level of duty so much so that if your child wants to transition, if they want to have a different name, if they want to go by a different pronoun, that they don't have any responsibility to inform the parent of that. Is that something that you're willing to accept? Because I'm certainly not. And I don't think anybody should accept it. It's terribly dangerous. One, there are predators that exist within the public school system. That's just a fact. I think there's a lot more than just sexual predators at this point. But just, just assuming that there's only sexual predators and there's even a half a percent, that's still a lot of sexual predators that are, that are teaching your kids. Do you not want to know what's happening with your child? Do you think that they should have any right to have private communications with your child that you're not allowed to know about? I'd say absolutely not. Ever. Never. You're not allowed to communicate with my child in a way that's secretive at all. Ever. <laughs> that, that would be my stance if I was a parent. And I hope that most parents that are listening right now feel similarly. And then if you, extra if you uh, extrapolate this level of privacy that they're pushing for into the extremist gender cult that they're pushing as well, well, then you have precedent for them to not disclose to you that your kid is now feeling as if perhaps they're in the wrong body, which is something I would want to know as early as possible so I can lend professional and parental assistance to that matter so that I can look after my child before that sickness because it is a sickness to feel that way before it gets any more deep-rooted now there is a very small percentage of people that i believe are genuine in their need to transition i don't believe that that should be occurring with children and i don't believe that it's at anywhere near the scale that is being reported in the education system today where there's like 10% or 20% of kids that are labeling themselves non-binary. And there's like multiple, multiple higher percentages uh, of people that are, are now believing that they are in fact transgender than have ever, ever happened in human history. Ever. It's not a natural phenomenon. It's a contagion effect of what I believe is a psychological operation. Maybe not intentional, but certainly it's, behaving as such in the fact that it's making so many kids question things that they otherwise never would have. It's also a cultural contagion on top of that. So 
it's a deep it's a deep rooted problem and it's going to it's going to require some deep digging to to remedy it and you don't get that by obfuscation and keeping secrets and suing parents that want to know what you're teaching your their children so just say no put your foot down before we bring in judge Knapp, i got one more clip i'm sorry i keep playing kanakoa but this guy just keeps bringing heaters so i gotta get him on the show one of these days hopefully he'll say yes um and this is about uh crimea and as i will you'll hear in a few minutes with uh, judge Knapp, i talked about victoria newland who said that they essentially stand with uh, the Ukrainians when it comes to any sort of military necessary when it comes to fighting that happens to be taking place or being deployed from Crimea, which most uh, acknowledge at this point that Crimea is in fact Russia. So uh, <laughs> that's a dangerous thing for the U.S. to be saying they stand behind. And shocker of all shockers, NBC News agrees with me that it's in fact very implausible that the Ukrainians are going to take back Crimea. President Zelensky vowed on Sunday to take back Crimea. How realistic is that? The people there whom you spoke to view themselves as Russian. That's right. From those people that we spoke to, it seemed unrealistic. And Andrew, I want to show you some new picture that we filmed yesterday at the port of Sevastopol. Now, this is the closest that any U.S. news crew has got to the Russian Black Sea fleet in many, many years. What you're seeing here are President Putin's ships at that port. Why it's important is because Vladimir Putin will be determined to defend, to defend that port, to not have it uh, taken away from him. Uh, he may well do pretty much anything to try to achieve that. And, and the reason why is because it is so strategically important to Russia. But here's the irony. Uh, the fact, uh, since he launched that uh, invasion a year ago in Ukraine, Ukrainians now will be determined not to have the Black Sea Fleet there, potentially threatening their uh, coast for years to come. So it is a very, very dangerous standoff that suggests that this could pan out for some time to come. It's hard to see how you reach a negotiation over that. And there in Sevastopol, Andrew, I've got to tell you, I mean, there was just military everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Uh, it is a military town. So again, when, for example, Victoria, Victoria Newland talks about, at the very least, we want Crimea to be demilitarized, I found myself standing there and wondering, how on earth does that happen? And Kier, you know, we keep hearing that Crimea is exactly what NATO and the U.S. fear Zelensky will try to go into with long-range weapons, maybe even with those F-16s if he ever were to get them, which I don't think he will, not in the near term. They're worried that that is a tripwire for Vladimir Putin. What is your take on that? That's what they are worried about. I mean, that we're standing in the place that has uh, Jake Sullivan, for example, really worried, Andrew. And the reason why is because the idea that NATO weapons might kind of land on this, this place, potentially kill Russian civilians, uh, and that that would be an escalation. But 
by the way, this is an enormous challenge. Mark, General Mark Milley has, has made this clear. This is an enormous challenge for the Ukrainians. Here's why. Let's just give you a close-up look at that, that bridge behind me there. That's how we travelled uh, into uh, Crimea. It is open now. It is one of only two ways to get here. The other is a land bridge over to the northwest of here that is very, very much exposed. So with land forces, how do you take Crimea if you are the Ukrainians? That's why General Mark Milley says he thinks uh, that it will be extremely difficult for the Ukrainians to push the Russians out of here. We, we have seen uh, substantial defences around this bridge behind me that is uh, President Putin's pride, of pride and joy, uh, Andrea. And, and that's not surprising. But uh, as we saw in, in my piece, I mean, we also uh, know that the Ukrainians have wanted, or at least they haven't admitted it, but it's it seems pretty likely that it was the Ukrainians that they've wanted to target that bridge behind me there. Again, if you take down that bridge, how do the civilians leave? These are very, very difficult questions if we do get to the point where Crimea is uh, a, a, an objective that the Ukrainians realistically uh, can look at militarily. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> it's a big challenge. Um, so I just wanted to remind you guys uh i mean we are playing with real fire here and anyone that downplays it and just thinks that this is like something you can virtue signal about uh you you need to get back in touch with reality as the kids say you need to touch grass this is not a joke <laughs> this is not a game we're talking about from russia's perspective what would be existential if they lose crimea and they lose their warm water port they would be so crippled that I don't think that they could recover. And for that reason, they will not lose Crimea. Okay. On top of that, if you want to make the moral argument as to why we shouldn't uh, support Ukraine in its desire to take back Crimea, the people of Crimea themselves view themselves as Russian. That's what NBC News said. <laughs> Am I still a conspiracy theorist for telling you this? I sure hope not. It's the truth. The people of Crimea view themselves as Russian. So it would, in fact, be much more similar to, to Ukraine stealing land, because that's what everyone says, a war of aggression, if you will, from Russia. Are we going to stand by and support that? Even if it risks nuclear holocaust? I sure hope not. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's real perilous. And the fact that Victoria Nuland from our State Department is saying that we support Ukraine in whatever measures they need to take to defend themselves by attacking within Crimea, also very, very dangerous. And the fact that these people are doing so without a declaration of war, insane. I'm not even going to say dangerous. It's just insane. And I'm sorry that I keep beating this this dead horse, but it's just too important for me not to talk about almost every single show. It's that important. It's more important than the COVID lockdowns. It's more important than even the curriculum in your school. Like this is, this rises to the highest level of importance. And I'm going to continue to, to beat the peace drum as opposed to the war drums, which NBC News is usually the one beating. So if they're now start, starting to say to themselves, oh, this sounds a little dangerous, doesn't it? Yeah, you might want to take that seriously. Okay. I'll get off my high horse. Uh, before we get into the episode with Judge Neff, this episode is brought to you ad-free, but I would love it and I would appreciate it 
if you guys would support my work by going to libertylockdown.locals.com. The link will be in the description below. I'm going to be doing an AMA where you get to come in on stream with me, ask me whatever you'd like, uh, kind of like an AMA that you might see Dave Smith doing on YouTube, for instance, but this is exclusive to my supporters, and it's also a way that you can actually talk to me as opposed to just like sending super chats or whatever. It doesn't cost a lot of money um, to, to become a supporting member, but I'm trying desperately to not be uh, reliant on YouTube and any way I can build up a, a marketing stream or a, uh, a revenue stream that I can use for marketing to get this message to more people. You can play a part in that. I think you value this message or you wouldn't be listening every week. Um, so if you, if you feel similarly, and even if you don't want to go on stream with me, if you just want to help me out so that I can get this message to more people, that's your way to do it. LibertyLockdown.Locals.com or go to TopLobster.com, pick up a Liberty Lockdown shirt. Um, I've been hitting the gym very hard ever since uh, Jack Posobiec called me fat. And I hope to be in fighting shape here soon so that you guys can feel proud of me once again and I can be as sexy as humanly possible so that I can bring the message of liberty in a package that makes your dicks hard. Sorry, that was inappropriate. <laughs> Without further ado, Judge Andrew Napolitano. Enjoy the rest of the show. We're out. Quick interlude just to say thank you so much for listening, but please hit the like, the comment, and the subscribe button in whatever order you feel like. It helps with the algos. Like, comment, subscribe. Thank you. And we are back once again with my favorite judge and yours, Mr. Judge Andrew Napolitano. Thank you for joining us, Judge. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Clint. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Thank you for making some time. Um, so I wanted to get started with the the latest on Ukraine. And this is actually a clip of our favorite diplomat. Just kidding. Uh, Victoria Newland. So let me let me play you the clip and we'll just talk about it because it's pretty concerning who said that our reluctance to provide Ukraine with weapons to strike Crimea directly is softening. And the article goes on is that the logic, according to these officials, is only when Ukraine shows Russia it might lose Crimea will Putin get serious about negotiating. So I'm going to go back to the way I framed this before which is that there is an, a drone base in Crimea where the drones that the Iranians have yes, given yes. Russia are being launched from. There are command and control sites in Crimea that are essential for uh, Russia's hold on all of the territory, including the land bridge. There are um, mass military installations in, on Crimea that Russia has turned into essential logistics and back office depots for this war. Those are legitimate targets. Ukraine is hitting them and we are supporting that. Concerning to put it lightly, but I'm just curious what your knee-jerk reaction is to that, that we are supporting Ukraine in attacking what most had considered to be Russian territory. Well, it was Russian part of Russia since Catherine the Great, which is before the American Revolution. <laughs> I mean, Pretty she uh, is acknowledging what uh, Colonel McGregor and, St and Scott Ritter and others who agree with us uh, have been saying nationally for a couple of weeks, uh, which is that American uh, military equipment is being uh, used to target Russia and Russian um, um, military uh, personnel. And some of that equipment is being aimed 
not like you'd aim a gun because it's done on computer. Right. And the trigger's being pulled. Again, not like you pull the trigger on a gun. It's it's a bunch of buttons and switches at the same time. The aiming is done, the, the equipment is in Ukraine. The aiming is done by Americans in Ukraine. The trigger is pulled by Americans in Poland. The Americans are military in Ukraine. They're out of uniform. In Poland, they're in uniform. And we're killing Russian boys. So are American boys killing Russian boys? Yes. Has the Congress declared war on Russia? No, it can't. Because under the treaties we've signed, we can only declare war when, when the object of the war poses a serious military threat to the United States, which Russia does not. We pose more of a threat to it than it does uh, to us. Has Congress authorized military force? No. Congress has told the president, here's $113 billion, spend it however you want. He has spent it on military equipment, he's given away cash, and he sent troops there. There is zero authorization for troops. Yeah. So well, Victoria I, uh... Newland, notwithstanding her background with which you and I and everybody listening to us now uh, is familiar. By the way, she, I didn't know this. She was just a few years behind me at Princeton. Oh, no kidding. I was undergraduate there. I never knew her. I never heard of her until, uh, you know, in the, in the Ukraine Trump stuff started a few years ago. Anyway, right. uh, Victoria Newland has uh, wittingly or unwittingly, I don't know what the format was or the venue was in which uh, Aaron David Miller, who I know was uh, was interrogating her, if it was his podcast or if it was some sort of a press conference where he was remote, he appeared to be in his home or his mm -hmm. office. Uh, she has confirmed what the rest of us have been saying. Yeah, well, and and I think that with that confirmation comes the obvious question: How is it that they are continuing with this process without a declaration of war? I mean. It is because because they don't care about the Constitution. They, the administration and the Congress, even I hate to say this, our friends, Thomas Massey in the House, Rand Paul in the Senate, even the wacky progressives that occasionally agree with us on war and peace. Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren, silence, 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 crickets from all of them. The only yeah. one who has questioned this is Mike Lee, Senator Lee of Utah, a conservative Republican with libertarian uh, leanings and a serious legal scholar. He clerked, clerked for Justice uh, Alito. Um, uh, I just don't know why there is no clamor. Where mm -hmm. is the where is the peace movement? Where is the anti-war movement? Where are the constitutionalists? You and me. <laughs> and, and those of us that say this on podcasts, yeah. Gerald Salenti and those folks that uh, spoke in Washington, D.C. Two, uh, two Sundays ago, there were as many people on the stage as there were in the audience. The audience had 3,000 people. There should have been 300,000 people there. I agree. I was there. It was, uh, okay. you know, even, even though it was disappointing to see the size of the crowd, I'll, I'll say it was heartening to see that there was at least a crowd <laughs> because right. I, up until then I had felt completely alone. Well, this begs the question, if if the the commander in chief is willing to violate the constitution and the Congress is not willing to uphold the constitution and demand that this be stopped, is there anything else legally that can be done? Can we bring a lawsuit? Like what can we do? Well, I can't imagine that the courts would hear such a lawsuit. They, they have a doctrine called, oh, this is judge made, the political question doctrine, 
which means if the cause of action forces the court to evaluate a political judgment made by one of the other two branches, the court will not do so. It will leave it to the other two branches. So the court would basically say, you don't like this, elect a new Congress. All right. Uh, I'll well, tell you if we have time for that. <laughs> I'll tell you, no, we don't have time for that. We do have time for a simple vote in a couple of state legislatures to secede. Mm, yeah. You know, there was a time when you said this, people thought you were uh, from the moon. Right. Now it's a serious, serious conversation. There are four counties in Western Oregon that want to join uh, Idaho. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the greater, greater Idaho. Green suggested this in, in her usual over-the-top way. Right. But if you look at the history she cited, she's quite correct. Madison and Jefferson obviously contemplated it. Just read the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions that they secretly wrote. Uh, in opposition to the Alien and Sedition Acts. I mean, secession is not going to stop Biden from funding the war, but it would terrify the government. Nothing terrifies the government. Nothing sobers it up more than knowing that it will lose a geographic area that it can tax and control. I couldn't agree more. And this is why I'm fully on board with the Michael Malices and the Dave Smiths of the world, including yourself, that that at least the threat of it, a peaceful secession, at least the threat of it might actually get them to come to the negotiating table and say, okay, we have ignored you too long. We're hearing you now. What What is it that you want from us? And it's like, well, what we want is not World War III. That's a pretty simple ask. Can we possibly get that? Um, a quick question for you, because I'm sure you know the history of it. After the Civil War, there was, uh, I think it was a Supreme Court ruling that basically declared their attempted secession as unconstitutional in some fashion. Do I have that right? And and how would secession be constitutional given that precedent? Okay. Um, the, the Supreme Court opinion has to do with the redeemability of Texas bonds. So bondholders in Texas, they, they bought the bonds from the, from the state of Texas after it seceded. Mm. And then after the war, they went to the state of Texas and said, here are these bonds, redeem them, a.k.a. give us our money back. Right. And the state of Texas refused and said, that wasn't us. That was the guys that ran the government, uh, mm. and it was illicit. Uh, and the Supreme Court sided, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the state of Texas. In so doing, it uttered what's called dicta, D-I-C-T-A. Dicta is a statement made by the court not necessary for the resolution of the case and just an opinion of the jurists. Mm. And the dicta was the only way a state could secede would be for three quarters of the other states to agree. There is no hint of that in the Constitution. Hmm. Maybe well, three quarters of the states are necessary to amend the Constitution. Right. But there's no three quarters of the states required to secede. West Virginia was formed illegally by Lincoln and the Republican Congress out of the portion of Virginia that didn't secede, even though the Constitution expressly says no state shall be formed out of another state without the original state's consent. They didn't even ask Virginia's consent. They would never have gotten it. So wow. occasionally people say things and get away with things that are unconstitutional. In this case, the dicta is just dicta. It wasn't necessary for the resolution of the case, and it's not 
uh, it's not the law of the land. A lot of people believe that secession was resolved uh, by the force of arms, by Lincoln killing 750,000 uh, Americans. Secession to me is a simple vote by the legislature. It took a simple vote to join. It's a simple vote to vote to unjoin. Yeah, uh, I think that's a totally fair way of looking at it. The only reason I asked is because I've been discussing this a lot online lately, and I, I knew some of the history that you just described there, but a lot of people believe because the feds came down in such a, a vicious fashion and, and had the civil war over the attempted secession of the South, that it is essentially unconstitutional. And, and I, I personally don't believe that to be the case. And I think that the founders would be appalled at the assertion. Every one of the founders contemplated that this was a voluntary act. Right. We know that because it says at the end of the constitution, this constitution will only come into effect if nine states ratify it. Well, suppose mm. only eight ratified it. What would they have done? Put guns to the heads of the legislators in the non-ratifying states? No, the constitution would have been worth the paper it's written on. It's not worth the paper it's written on today <laughs> because it has failed miserably and completely as an instrument to restrain uh, the federal government. No kidding. Uh, but they obviously uh, contemplated the free legislative will of the states. Yeah. There is, well, of course, a typo in the Constitution. The third word, we the people, mm. was not the people that formed the federal government. It was the 13 states. Mm. That was a canard written by Madison in his big government era. You know, <laughs> Madison goes from being a revolutionary to being an anti-federalist to being big government, to being an anti-federalist again. By the time he dies, he's he's a he's he's a big government. He's been back and forth and back and forth. There are four or five Madisons. This nonsense about we the people was written in his big government days. So it should have been we the states. That then absolutely secession, secession absolutely. would have been more obviously an option at that absolutely. point. Absolutely. Read read the last paragraph of the document. It is meaningless until ratified by nine of the 13 states. Yep. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. Well, thank you so much for the clarification. Um, let me transition now to, since we have a limited amount of time, uh, the FBI recently has come out and said that they also side with the DOE when it comes to the, the lab leak theory in, in Wuhan. Um, I'm curious, first off, why is it that the FBI would be investigating this at all, given that it's 6,000 miles away and they're allegedly a domestic police force? A federal police force like isn't that kind of interesting to you or am i the only one no no you're not the only one and and it's a great point uh, that you raise i mean a third of the fbi now is in intelligence which is basically spying and i can't imagine that they limit their spying uh, to just the united states um the fbi has taken uh, on on its own Trump could have stopped this. He didn't. Maybe he didn't understand it. It won't stop now under Biden because Certainly. he likes this stuff. It grew under Bush Cheney uh, and then under Obama. The real culprit here is Bush, George W., mm -hmm. uh, creating uh, these massive um, uh, intelligence uh, bureaus. The federal government admits to 17 of them, one of which is in uh, the FBI. I would imagine that they did conduct some type of uh, surveillance, which goes all the way there. Now, whether they were physically present in China or whether they did all this remotely, um, 
I don't know. But of course, they should have had nothing to do with it. The flip side of this is the CIA, right. the charter of which prohibits working on law enforcement or, or surveillance domestically. Mm -hmm. well, we know they're all over the place domestically. <laughs> Indeed. We know from two former uh, state governors uh, that they are in every state house in the union. Incredible. All 50 state houses. And that's where they admit to being. They obviously uh, are elsewhere. Yeah, well, so you have the CIA that works domestically and the the FBI that works in foreign intel. It's and just... a constitution that can't restrain either of them. <laughs> I mean, it is it is pretty dark out there. Well, and the part of the reason I ask is because what I what I have perceived in all this is a massive narrative shift that is went from you know you're a racist to think that this virus you know the china virus you can't call it that you can't consider the fact that maybe this virus came from the wuhan lab and now it did come from the wuhan lab but we're still not connecting the dots when it comes to eco health and fauci's funding through nih to peter dazak the fact that the who put dazak in charge of the investigation into the wuhan institute of virology like all of it seems to be obfuscated by the Chinese are the problem. The CCP is the problem. And it feels to me as if they are ramping the American people up for when Russia inevitably wins the war in Ukraine, they're going to transition us into a cold war, hopefully just cold uh, war footing over the Taiwan situation with China. That's my read of it. I'm curious if you have a different one. Uh, my read is, uh, is darker than yours. I don't think the Taiwan uh, situation will be cold. I think it'll be hot. I think uh, wow. Biden is loony enough to think that somehow uh, an, an island can defend itself from a continent and somehow thinks that, that we could get, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, troops and material through the Chinese Navy, which is twice the size of ours. I don't know how that could possibly happen, but he's, he's promised uh, to do it. Uh, but yes, the Cold War uh, will return uh, in Europe. There's no, no question about it. Uh, Victoria Newland uh, uh, manifests the attitude uh, of the State Department, which is the attitude of much of the foreign ministers uh, in Western Europe today. Mm. Um, if you get a chance, read an English translation, unless you're fluent in Russian, of, of Vladimir Putin's uh, speech to the Duma, more or less his State of the Union speech on February, I forget it was 21st or 22nd. I read it, yeah. Okay, this is the speech where he the West said he'd be brutal, bitter, nasty, and vengeful. It was one of the most rational speeches ever given by a head of state uh, in the modern era. Rational, tempered, moderate of tone. He truly believes that the West is the cause of this, and we know the West is. Yeah. Maybe if George W. H. W. were still around, he would recognize, yes, we promised Gorbachev, uh, that NATO would not move 800 miles eastward, and it did. And the weapons are there, and they're aimed at Moscow. And people like the loopy president of Poland wants to use those weapons because he somehow, somehow thinks that Crimea can be liberated from the Russians. I mean, this is like Texas would be liberated from the Americans and return to Mexico. I mean, it makes as much sense. <laughs> yeah, it ain't going to happen. And if you believe that it's going to happen, it, it's going to get real, real ugly. Well, thank you so much for the insight. As always, everybody go subscribe to Judging Freedom. It's one of the best shows out there. And uh, 
Thank you so much. I know we cover a lot of dark stuff, but I always come away more hopeful that there's at least someone on my side in this fight with me. As do I. It's a pleasure to be interviewed by somebody who's one-third my age. God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) One-third. Come on. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?